0: You stay wild. I'm a guy you like a pilot. I haven't been around as year. I'd like to see you change your gears. Hey, everybody. It is time once again for the Everybody Trades podcast. Except absolutely no substitute internet radio programs. So. Enough silliness. Let's get right into it today. Recently on CNBC, The Oracle of Omaha, arguably the greatest investor of all time in some people's minds, Warren Buffett was having his usual sit-down interview with Becky Quick of CNBC, and Ms. Quick asked him about guidance. Specifically, President Trump recently mentioned that he thought it'd be good for companies in general, but public companies specifically to instead of having to report their earnings each quarter four times a year, they should have to do it twice a year. He thought that would put less pressure on sort of short term interests and take a broader, broader, uh, longer term, cause investors to take a broader term look at a company's performance. Well, here's what Mr. Buffett had to say about that. I, I like to get, get those quarterly reports. I do not like guidance, and I think that guidance leads to lots of bad things, and I've seen it lead to lots of bad things. I don't think quarterly reporting itself—it's uh, it's when you get into promising people what you're going to do every quarter because I can't promise it what's going to happen. You know, we're in the we're in the hurricane season now, and you, you can change our earnings dramatically uh, with a storm or something of the sort. So, I I think. I think it's a very bad practice to be in in the game of earnings earnings guidance, and it is a game. I mean, you know, people play it as a game, and then people adjust to numbers and all that. But I, I like to get the figures quarterly, and and uh, I hope yeah, I hope that stays. So I got to say, um, Mr. Buffett and I won't agree on everything politically, that's for sure. But in this particular case, I think he's a hundred percent spot on, particularly about the dangers of guidance and just the the general dangers of predict trying to predict the future with any type of ontological certitude. And now that may seem like a bit of a dichotomy coming from myself and from Warren Buffett, two people who fancy themselves investors, traders, speculators, arbitrageurs. In other words, we make our living trying to make predictions about the future and not just make predictions, but put our money where our mouth is, where our mouths are, as it were. You see, it's not just about, hey, here's my prediction. I'm going to go on TV and spout off. No, that's about actually trying to buy something and then sell it at a price at a later future. And that involves a lot. That involves a great level of analysis. It also involves being wrong a lot. Now again, stark contrast between something that has happened, and something that we're predicting will happen. Again, let's take a sports analogy to just make it simple. If I was predicting this past weekend, who I'm nervous about Missouri and Wyoming. Well, now we have a result. See, that's what quarter- quarterly results are. It's not a statistic. It's an event. It's something that happened, okay? But guidance, that's a whole other thing. Now, obviously, people like Again, me and Mr. Buffett are going to try to make our predictions, but that doesn't mean that we need to legally require people to make forward guidance because again, like Mr. Buffett said, no matter how with with the threat of jail time or any sort of legalized force and threat that you put on people, they aren't going to be able to accurately predict the future. And there's no way around that. So therefore, I think we should just get rid of any notion of legalized guidance altogether. In fact, just the practice of guidance, we should get out of it. Now, obviously, companies are going to have to talk about what's happening in the future. They're going to want to talk about projects that are underway that have not fully come to fruition yet. And by nature, that's going to involve some forward-looking statements and that sort of thing. But this sort of goofy practice that has become commonplace in the stock market. It's called UPOD, Under Promise, Over Deliver. This is what it's considered savvy now to do. Basically, if you're a CEO, you want to sort of lowball your guidance, estimate a little bit lower than you maybe otherwise would have, so when your quarter comes out, it looks like you've beaten, quote unquote, your own estimates. Well, again, if you set an, an... an intentionally low bar for yourself it's going to be pretty clear it's going to be fairly easy to jump over said bar but if you raise that bar too high for yourself obviously it's going to be more difficult to clear that's what Buffett's talking about when he talks about how this is a game that's manipulated by the players that are involved again when you get down to it results the quarterly results are far more important than guidance because If these people lie on their quarterly results, that is something that can easily be actionable and send you to jail, whereas lying about the future, that's a much more spurious, sort of difficult thing to prove logically, legally, in any sort of sense, because it's not that I lied about the future, I was just wrong. But when it comes to an event, an event that happened at your company, now that... A much more clear line can be drawn there of falsehoods and fraud. Frankly, this entire logic not only applies to guidance, but lots of other things that involve forward-looking actions and statements. Think about just the idea of pensions in general. Whether it's in the government sector or the private sector, Pensions can and will go bad. They go bust. Pensions, funds go bust. They eventually are required to pay out more than what many of them actually have in their funds, and therefore they go broke. Well, this is by its nature, again, looking forward and promising things in the future is a dangerous endeavor. So that's part of the reason why the fact that interest rates are no longer in, in many ways, the amount of money that I charge for you to borrow money from me, or vice versa, is no longer really in our hands. And that's a dangerous thing, and here's why. Because all interest rates really are, is an expression of risk and time preference. Let me give you an example. If I'm a good lender, if you know me well and you think that I am very likely to pay you back whatever you're lending me, you're gonna charge me a relatively low amount of interest, whatever it might be. In fact, if you're if I'm your son or your brother or whatever, you might charge me nothing. There are those of us who we give zero percent interest free loans to all the time in our lives. And they might pay us back the next day. It may be something as simple as a twenty dollar bill for Lunch or whatever. And we think, hey, no big deal because A, we know the person, and B, the $20 of risk isn't that much to us. So we decide our preference is fine, I'll get it back the next day, almost 100%. So we go with that. We go with the 0%. Now, on the other hand, if you were lending out a much significantly larger chunk of money, say $20,000, say you're a banker and you're lending out to a person that you just met this afternoon. Well, indeed, there's a much higher level of risk there. We can all clearly see that because while this person seems nice, perhaps, they seem like they have integrity, how can we really know? I don't have the same personal relationship that I did with my coworker who I lent $20 to. And in absence of these types of calculations that we all must make with our own money, deciding, okay, what level of interest do I get back that it's, risk, that it's worth risking that this person will not pay me back. You see, if we can't individually make these types of decisions and we allow a central authority like the Federal Reserve to make these types of decisions for us, we're going to have incredible, enormous, insolvable problems money will be lent out where it otherwise would not have. And frankly, there will be loans that otherwise would have been lent out that will not be lent out. And the net result of all of this is what is called malinvestment. Money is not going where it otherwise would have. We have a central authority muddying up the waters, and this is what causes the bubble economies to inflate because, again, the cheap money flows like, just like water, lowest resistance, it flows where the money is hot, where, where business is hot, where things are doing well, and eventually these things get overheated. You can see this very clearly in what is called skyscraper curses. You see, for a while, apartment buildings are really, really profitable in, in an economic boom cycle, and lots of money, this cheap money, flows into these things until eventually there are no more tenants left. Until eventually, we've run out of people to fill these buildings. Now the, the rents can no longer, the skyrocketing rents, the people or, or potential inhabitants of these apartments can no longer keep up with the prices. And that is when a recession hits. And you know, traditionally, this whole easy money phenomenon that is created by not only artificial interest rates, but the central control of the money supply, the amount of dollars that are actually printed and put into circulation, that has manifested itself, to me, most clearly in the continually rising prices, for the most part, until, of course, 2008 and that whole calamity, of the housing market, what's commonly known as the American dream, this idea that Once you buy a house, it will just keep rising in price and perpetuity, and this is obviously a great thing from everybody. In fact, on the Adam Carolla show the other day, Adam and his sidekick, Bald Brian, uh, were having this exchange, and not to argue with the specifics of what they were, the point they were trying to make, but I thought it made a nice point for me, so let's listen to what they were saying. Brian's house and my house. I could go. Oh, my house is a little bit better than Brian's house. I wouldn't say it's a thousand times better. I wouldn't say oh his isn't a house and mine's a castle. Really? I just might go. My certain percent better. a yeah. f- Few more square feet or a couple more bathrooms or whatever. So then, what if Brian's house sells for forty eight million dollars? Oh, you're dancing on uh, air. We're all happy. That's a win win. <laughs> that makes my house more valuable than yeah. Brian's. So whatever his went for, yeah. I'm 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 rooting for his house. Yep. So uh, high lifts all boats. That's right. So what I want to take issue with here is obviously not that Adam's first point was that, well, hey, if your house sells for $48 million, meaning a lot more than what I paid for my nicer house, then this is great for me. Hey, it's a win-win. It's a win for Brian, and it's a win for Adam. As Brian put it there, a rising tide lifts all boats. Except... Again, they're, they're totally right with their specific point there, and I'm not arguing with anything they're saying there. It just made me think about something in a very specific sense, and that's this. When you say a rising tide lifts all boats, it's not about, hey, the price of our houses keeps rising and therefore our wealth keeps getting bigger. That's not really how it works, because first of all, all boats Well, what if I've been a renter for the past 25 years? And in fact, during that time, all I've seen is my rent keep rising. And as such, while the value of houses keeps increasing, the price, the sticker, the dollar amount of houses for the same house keeps rising in general each and every year through that 25-year period, that actually hurts me, the renter, the man who isn't a homeowner yet. So I guess a rising tide doesn't lift all boats in this case you see in most cases we think of lower prices lifting all boats you see for some reason when the price of gasoline goes down we all cheer but when the price of housing goes down we panic that's a very strange thing because obviously transportation is important shelter is important we like it when food is cheaper right anytime I see fast food ads, all they advertise now is not how good their food is, it's how cheap it is. So why is it with housing, we assume that increasing prices, never-ending prices, are good? Why do we assume that? So I think part of that is obviously this American Dream propaganda that has been shoved down our throats for decades. And obviously we've been convinced that, oh my God, we have to, must get in the housing market as soon as we can. But unfortunately, a lot of this is artificial. Don't get me wrong. If you were wise enough to buy a house and you're in a neighborhood that it quickly increased in prices and you flip that house for a profit, good for you. I have no quibble with that. That's not the problem. And if you did that, awesome. I'm happy for you. Unfortunately, not all of us were that deft and not all of us were that quick. It's not it's not the guaranteed investment that people think that it is. And that's the thing. This idea of an easy investment is so seductive that even I fell for it. Even my real estate agent, when I bought my house in 2006, was saying, oh, you definitely won't lose money on this deal. Well, believe me, I did lose money on that deal, a significant amount, about 30% of my original investment. So, yeah, that's one. That's the good lesson for the day is, well, the harsh lesson in my case, but if anybody tells you that an investment, a trade, whatever, is 100% can't go wrong, that's the thing. Getting back to Warren Buffett, like he can't predict the future, I can't predict the future, and neither can you. So therefore, anybody who tells you that they can, you need to run from that person, and just like... The person in the previous episode who suggested penny stocks that I told you to run from, you need to run from that person as well. Because as Charles Barkley says, only God's an expert, Ernie. So that'll be it. Until next time on the Everybody Trades Podcast.